everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. We are recording this in mid-December 2023, but we'll release this in the new season on the 2024 show in late January. I am so excited to uh, have my friends Scott Free and Alex Segura joining me again today, and I'm honored to meet the incredible writer, someone I've followed since my childhood, Although uh, I'm not that much younger than him, I think. <laughs> uh, Mr. Simon Furman, welcome to the show. Let me have each of you introduce yourselves. Uh, let us know your name and your pronouns, uh, where we might know you from. And the intro question for today is, have you ever been angry enough to break something? Uh, let's begin with uh, Simon Furman. Hi, Simon. Hi, I'm Simon Furman. I'm a writer for going on 40 years now for comics. Um, I've worked particularly on Transformers. That seemed to be the launch pad and the thing that ticks along ever since. And uh, I've also worked for Marvel. I've worked for um, Dynamite. I've worked for a bunch of other companies on various projects. And uh, yeah, uh, I don't think I've ever broken anything in uh, in madness, but I think I've, I've I certainly subscribe to that. When somebody's really pissed you off write the email you want to write and then can it and write the sort of sanitized version of it so that's generally how i i work out my little anger issues here and there uh i'm a therapist in my day job and i assign that uh that the homework to people all the time go write an angry letter <laughs> but don't send it uh let's go over to alex next hi alex Hey, Alex Segura, uh, he, him pronouns. I'm a author of comics and novels. My uh, probably most recognizable work is Secret Identity, a comic book noir set in the 70s comic book industry that won the LA Times Book Prize. I've written comics for Marvel, DC, Image, Dark Horse, Archie. Uh, in terms of the X-Men, I wrote a Polaris X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic. Uh, I wrote a Sunspot short story in Marvel Voices. And... Uh, a Miss Marvel short for Marvel Infinity Comics as well. So, oh yeah, Miss Marvel's a mutant now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, does this count? Oh, it counts. Yeah, she's a mutant now. Uh, have you ever broken something in anger? Uh, I have not. I also subscribe to the idea of drafting your angry email or putting your thoughts on paper and then dragging it to the trash. Um, I'm I'm pretty easygoing, so I, I like to joke that I'm perpetually annoyed, but very rarely angry. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, it's great to see you, Alex. And then over to yeah, Scott. Uh, yeah, uh, Scott, Scott Free. Uh, uh, thanks for having me back. Um, I am a uh, podcast, I was going to say like professional podcast guest, but um, <laughs> uh, uh, cosplayer, annoying internet person. Um, I, uh, I'm an attorney in my day job. Um, as for uh, broken stuff and anger, I also subscribe to the writing an angry letter um, philosophy. But as an attorney, uh, I generally send the angry letters. So um, I, I, I don't generally put them in the desk. Uh, have I actually broken anything in anger? I don't think so. But, uh, you know, like I'm I'm still young. So we'll see. Man, yeah, we got a bunch of we got a bunch of polite guests today. <laughs> God, I think we've interacted on the Cerebro Discord. We we have, uh, yeah. yeah, Cerebro Discord. Um, have, have you been to like FlameCon or any? I have not. I missed it last this year because I was at another con, but I'd like to go next year for sure. 
Yeah. Well, let's all it's, hang out. It'll be a good yeah, time. Uh, definitely. Uh, Alex, were any of the creators from the issue we're reviewing later, Amazing Adventures number 14, uh, parodies or characters featured in Secret Identity in any way? <laughs> you know, it's you know, it's it's funny. So many people have asked me that, like, oh, is this person Jack Kirby? Is this person Alex Toth or what have you? But a lot of the characters in the novel are really amalgamations and kind of tweaks on ideas. But you know, I would say there's probably a Steve Englehart-ish character in the novel somewhere. Uh, you know, there's there's a there's one writer that you never meet that is kind of their Steve Gerber, Steve Englehart type author. So it's not one for one by any means, just for, and also for legal reasons. But you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah was a, there was a real Steve Englehart at the time, as there still is now. But in in that era, he was around doing his own thing. So uh, two weeks before this episode was released, I got to interview Steve Englehart about this series. So go hear uh, Steve's thoughts on this particular issue. But that's a, that was out a couple weeks ago at this point. Oh, it's a fascinating era. Yeah, yeah. He's an interesting guy. Uh, I've had him on twice. It's been fun to meet him. Uh, okay, I was born in 1978, which means I was a mid-80s kid. And mid-80s was all about like Saturday morning cartoons and like getting up real early so you never missed them. You know, we had the VCR, like you could record, but you know, you just had to watch it live. And breakfast cereal and you go collect the action figures afterward. This is the era of like He-Man and Transformers, which is a huge one. Uh, animals that turn into things and humans that turn into things and, you know, punchy action stuff. Uh, Alex and Scott, were you guys uh, action figure guys? Were you guys Transformers guys growing up? Yeah, I was. I was a huge Transformers nerd. I had the Transformers bed sheets. I was super into the cartoon. And um, I remember being very heartbroken after watching Optimus Prime die in the movie. Spoiler alert, I guess, for a 40-year-old movie. But, um, <laughs> And I still am terrified. There's that one episode, I guess, of the animated series right after the movie where he comes back as kind of like this zombie Optimus Prime uh, and then gets covered in gold, which was also really fascinating to a like six or seven year old me. But um, yeah, big Transformers kid. Love G.I. Joe, Thundercats. I was the same ritual as you, Chad. Just, you know, wake up before your parents wake up, pour yourself a bowl of like Fruit Loops or some sugary cereal and just download your brain into the television. It all worked out. I had a full conversation with someone the other day about Honeycrisps and how about oh, yeah. later, how about if you ate Honeycrisps later, your pee would smell like Honeycrisps. And I don't think I'd ever said that out loud, but I was like, oh yeah, there's there's childhood right there. <laughs> yeah, whenever I take my kids to the grocery store, we I obviously buy them like a pretty nice, healthy cereal. And then I'll see like Fruit Loops and be like, oh, those are the, those are the things your dad used to eat. And they're like, why can't we eat this like awesome looking cereal with a cartoon <laughs> on the box? Because it's gross. Uh, Scott, yeah. how about you? Um, I'm, I'm, I was much more of a late 90s, early 2000s kid, so uh, I'm part of that small group when someone says Megatron, I think actually of the Tyrannosaurus Rex Megatron from Beast Wars instead of the classic uh, Megatron, but I, I loved loved that, loved all of that. Um, Batman, the animated series, Batman Beyond, that whole sort of like like wave uh did you guys notice how scott's like casually like uh actually i'm like 20 years younger than all of you <laughs> <They're all old. laughs> uh so well, simon I, yeah. simon i want to start here with you not with transformers but with this kind of 80s energy of uh you know high action uh uh saturday morning cartoon energy that you're so well known for in a lot of your writing and i would love to if we can begin the conversation with brute force 
<laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about your your early work, if you would, and your work on brute force specifically. Yeah, I mean, brute force was in some ways quite a way along in my career because I started off in the UK doing stories for different UK comics um, and Brute Force and Marvel America came much later. So, you know, I, I started work on Transformers, Thundercats, Action Force, which was our G.I. Joe, things like that that were those mid-80s cartoon toy phenomena, I guess. And then from there, you know, Marvel UK branched out into its own US format comics. There was one called Dragon's Claws and another sure. one called Death Head. And that really got me my kind of my first US format comic books. And then very soon after that, Bob Budiansky, who was the writer on Transformers for the first 50 something issues, basically we met up, we, we'd already met a couple of times and he came over to the UK uh, basically to tell us, apart from other things, that he was finishing up on the book and and very casually over lunch, did I want to write it? And I'm like, it's my it's Marvel US. Why wouldn't I want to write this book? I don't care it's Transformers. I don't care it may be looking cancellation in the face. You know, it was my door opener for Marvel America. And pretty much everything went from there. You know, I, I wrote Transformers for Marvel US. Then other things started to slot in, like Brute Force, which was Marvel's idea of, let's do it the other way around. We've we've taken toy lines and turned them into comics to great acclaim. So we will create a toy line of our own, or a we, we will create a comic book that somebody will come in and say, these are great, we'll make toys of them. And that was Brute Force. Now, it was a kind of crazy idea. It wasn't my idea, but, you know, Bob Budiansky, again, thought I might be a good writer for it. They developed this more or less in-house with Charles and his last name escapes me, who kind of created the characters. But, you know, you had a dolphin and a lion and a bear and an eagle in exosuit. And, and a kangaroo. <laughs> a kangaroo, yep. Yep, there was, you know... There, there was a bad team of animals. You know, it was all very, these days, dodgy, you know, ground. We're going to experiment on a bunch of animals and stick them in cybernetic suits and give them Uzis. You know, it was the 90s. So, their, uh, their arch foes were also animals in suits. Uh, their names are Heavy Metal, and there's like a rhino and a, the, the, yeah, these, these are crazy characters. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was fun. You know, at the time, I was I was just a, a hungry writer, and I'm like, any anything Marvel want to give me, I'm going to do. So, you know, in that period, I managed to pick up work on Brute Force, What If, Al, um, Alpha Flight, uh, She-Hulk. You know, basically, any, any time they needed a writer, I was there. You know, I even did a Miss Marvel story. Uh, it was kind of that there was a missing chunk. Ms. Marvel had finished quite abruptly, and there was a half-finished issue that Claremont had written. Maybe some of it was drawn. Anyway, in some sort of strange loop, I ended up doing the last chunk that never got written. And so I, I, I got to do the sort of the whole Ms. Marvel meets Rogue 
showdown that had never really been seen in detail. So that was just great fun. I definitely have a question there. The reason I'm opening with Brute Force, these characters have gone on to become X-Men adjacent, for those that may be less familiar. Uh, another group that you worked on is Weapon X, which we'll talk about in your Alpha Flight work. Weapon X later, we turned out, uh, you know, Wolverine's Weapon 10, and there's all these earlier versions of their experiments. They have worked these Saturday morning cartoon animal guys, Brute Force, into that uh, lexicon. Were you familiar with that news, Simon? Yeah, I mean, I knew they'd, you know, they cropped up in a Deadpool thing. Then there was a Marvel uh, 616 program about them. And and yeah, they seem to have got this sort of resurgence, maybe because they were just kind of crazy 90s characters. But, you know, it's great. I love the fact that they're still kicking around. And suddenly these issues that I never thought would be collected were in a nice trade paperback. So, yeah, you know, it, it's all good. Paul Shear, the comedian, even did a recent Infinity comic on these guys, which is insane. It's kind of like they keep trying to make them happen, you know? <laughs> it's fun. My single favorite fact is the dolphin in this series is named Surf Streak, which is one of the most 90s names I've ever heard, and it's just terrible. <laughs> and the kangaroo was hip-hop. Hip-hop, yep, yep. So let's take a step back if we can. Tell us a little bit about your early entrance into Marvel UK and what was the difference between Marvel UK and Marvel US at that time? We are going to have some conversations about this on my show eventually when we start to get into the Captain Britain era of comics, but that'll take a minute still. Well, I mean, for those who don't know, Marvel UK was very much a reprint offshoot of Marvel US in based in London. You know, they did little bits of origination. They had... Captain Britain. They did some Hulk stuff in a Hulk Weekly that was originated. But gradually, by the time I came on board, they, you know, they were, we'd hit the licensing boom of the mid 80s. And I was recruited, you know, I'd written a few things for a British sort of quote unquote horror comic called Scream, which was my first work. And really, Transformers, when I was asked to come in, I was just handed a pile of reference, a few toy boxes, and said, go away and come up with some really, really self-contained stories. Because the British Transformers comic reprinted the American stories. But because it was weekly, they needed extra material. There just wasn't enough US stuff to reprint. So, so, so a lot of the early, for listeners, a lot of the earlier Captain Britain stories like appeared in UK books that had like a Spidey reprint before it or after it, right? And a lot of them are in black and white. Yeah, I mean, Captain Britain got his original comic sort of earlier on. You know, I think Claremont wrote some of it and uh, and it had it was much more produced by America for the UK. But then Captain Britain started guest starring until finally... He got his own title and he even appeared in a Marvel team up at the time, as I rem as I recall. Yeah. And you then know, uh, he, and then Excalibur. Yeah. Yeah. In his, you know, he got sort of a makeover by Alan Moore and Alan Davis. And yeah, suddenly he was a sort of he proper hero in his own right, as opposed to this somewhat, you know, attached to the Arthurian myths and legends character he'd started out as he's a he's a fascinating character uh was it a was it a pleasant experience working in this company and what was the transition like coming over to the us yeah i mean i mean i worked both on staff and as a freelancer for marvel uk and 
honestly, it was a brilliant, brilliant time. And we used to get the odd visitation from Marvel US. So Jim Shooter might come over and tell us not exactly what we were doing wrong, but how to do it the Marvel way. And, you know, then, you know, DeFalco, we had Carl Potts used to come over regularly. So we had a lot of Marvel editors and creatives who just thought this was great. You know, we can go over and see the UK and and make it a work trip. So uh, so that was great. And we got to go to Marvel US during that time and meet everybody. And really that, like I say, that was the launch pad, you know, getting to know Bob Budiansky, some of the editors out there. That was the launch pad for, you know, my sort of however many years at the beginning of the 90s working for Marvel America, which was kind of different because we'd always worked full script in the UK, which is, you know, the whole lot, dialogue, scene descriptions, panel by panel. But graduating to Marvel US, I had to learn to work Marvel plot style, where the whole issue is just broken down in blocks. And then it's down to the artist to dismantle that and put it into pages and panel layout. So, you know, it was different, very different. I've kind of some some great experiences doing it that way, some not so, and I shall mention no names, but you would sometimes where you'd put this detailed stuff in about what's happening, oh, pages two to three, and right in the middle of it, they draw a full page splash, and you think, well, that's sucked up about, you know, a third of my available space here, which you, know, you then just have to litter that with speech balloons. Uh, now, in the early 90s, Marvel was publishing a book, and you referenced this a minute ago, called Marvel Superheroes. It was a big maxi book that would put, I almost I almost wondered if they were often using uh, material that they had commissioned but never printed in the main books. Uh, but sometimes it seemed they were commissioning uh, talent as well. And you got to do a story with Chris Claremont in Marvel Stup Superheroes number 11. Uh, I believe it was Mike Vosberg, Mike Gustavich on pencils, which is an Iron Man, Ms. Marvel kind of Brotherhood of Evil Mutants story. It's pretty great. Uh, do you want to talk about working with Chris on this story? Well, I mean, the the truth is I never worked with Chris on this. I think Chris had done his stuff a while back before I was ever involved. And I think what they had was a slightly incomplete story. For whatever reason at the time, he did not want to come back and finish this up in a way that would make it, you know, I think he'd, I don't know which issue Ms. Marvel finished at, but they had at least one other issue in the can already. And maybe a plot or half another issue. And my job was to, that's why you get the change of artist when you look at that story, is some of it was plotted, some of it wasn't, and I had the job of just literally filling the end of this story and bringing it up to, you know, the rogue encounter. So, you know, but that was that was just incredible fun, joining those dots. Are you an X-Men guy? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I grew up largely reading Claremont's X-Men, you know, I mean, many other things. I mean, but Claremont's X-Men kind of got me hooked on the idea, I think, of I, I started to notice the writing so much when Claremont was on a book because he wrote a lot. But it was it was, you know, there was always a lot going on. 
And I think, you know, I tried as much as possible to learn from how much, you know, especially on a team book, how much characterization, how much subplot, how much um, angst generally on a given issue he could get in there and and still tell a fair, you know a cohesive action-packed story uh i'm gonna let scott take this next one as the world's biggest north star fan <laughs> yeah um well you know sort of leading off from that um you were the final writer on the original run of alpha flight from like issue 110 through uh, i think 130 and then the north star mini um what was it like sort of taking over like that book which at that point yeah it was in the 110s um in terms of running there's like 40 characters running around yeah <laughs> yeah i mean I, you know i was delighted and you know they they gave me almost like a little tryout so i did uh, issue 109 has a five page backup or something featuring see the beta or gamma flight and you know, they they more or less just said, you know, write us a story, see if you've, you know, you you got the feel for it. And I guess they were happy enough with that, that more or less I was just handed the book after that and able to run some of those ideas about gamma and beta flight on through the main book. And yeah, you know, I mean, it was an interesting time. I, I, you know, I just desperately wanted to be kind of involved with Marvel characters on a core Marvel book. So if Alpha Flight was it, fine. Maybe they thought a Brit was as good as a Canadian to write it, you know, that kind of way of looking at it. But whatever the case, you know, as I say, I was just more than happy to, you know, be be on a sort of regular month-to-month -month basis with a book with for Marvel. And very quickly, you know, we had we had such a good time on that. And, you know, we dropped in things that, you know, we, we ran a little story called The Clamp Down, which is almost like what became Civil War and the Superhero Registration Act. Was and, that a Clash and, reference? Yeah, it certainly is. Yes. Oh, I'm glad you spotted that. Yeah. 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 I used to litter my titles with sort of new wave-ish song titles but yes i do it with, i do it with costello song titles all the time yeah yeah mine are often jam titles in there yeah. but this was a flash one yes very cool yeah so yeah no i was great and you know of course north star had gained i suppose prominence because scott lobdell had written the coming out issue yeah. and you know i mean marvel were were both i think terrified and delighted by the whole north star phenomenon and when they asked me to write the mini series i was thinking great we can we can do something with this character and of course marvel slightly got cold feet and we had to keep constantly writing and rewriting that series which was frustrating but i always i always thought north star was a a brilliant character and b you know had had just sort of you know given a perfect platform for a mini series at that time and so yes i was slightly frustrated but you know again happy to do the the work and you know we we stuck arcade in there who's always one of my favorite characters villain wise 
So yeah, you know, we had a lot of fun with the series. I uh, I came out 13 years ago and I had not read North Star since I had been a teenager. So rereading it was really interesting as an out gay man. There's a lot of queer subtext in it. You're revisiting North Star's origins in kind of different phases, but Arcade is like a chaotically queer character in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of kind of mutant prejudice, but it seems also to be homophobia. The big villain at the end like hates North Star. And it's almost like you can't quite put it on the page but it's right there at the same time what was it like balancing that it's an interesting read yeah i mean you know i think we just had to not you know i think what marvel took out was the more overt references to what was what became more subtext in the actual finished series so you know it's it, it was like i say i think most of it survived intact but we just had to be more circumspect or however you want to sort of phrase it about, you know, just sort of not really sort of coming out and saying what we were saying. So it it it, it just like we really want to do a mini series about this gay character, and but here's the limitations on it. So it it was a little frustrating. And this was published in like AIDS era, like early, uh, you know, MTV's Real World kind of era of of life. What was uh what was the public reception at the time? Do you recall? Uh, I mean, I don't. Of course, we just didn't get the feedback, the instant feedback we get these days. Um, I mean, I hope it was well received. I have, you know, honestly, I'm not sure. I know the thing. The other thing with limited series was you never even got the kind of mailbag afterwards of of reader comments. So I don't know. I mean, it was towards the tail end of Alpha Flight as well. You know, it was that. I, you know, we, I don't know how many more issues we had after North Star ran, but, you know, I don't know how much Alpha Flight was in the focus at the time, how many people even read the series. Uh, your work on Alpha Flight is really interesting as a front-to-back read as well. It's another one I had not read in a long time. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of really fun mythology. Oh, I want to note quickly how beautiful the covers on the North Star series are. They're They're really... Yeah. They're really gorgeous. The the black on black with the white uh, star kind of shining out on every... Uh, did you have any comments on the covers before I shift the conversation? No, no. I need to... Yes, I, I thought they were... It was great to see a series with a design conceit followed through the whole four issues, you know, which at the time I don't think you often got. So, yeah, I, I was... I really like the covers on that, except at conventions, they're really tough to sign unless you've got a really good gold pen or silver pen. <laughs> I uh, I have a huge nostalgia for the Alpha Flight run and a lot of the stuff from your characters. I tried pitching some books back to Marvel several years ago, back when I was on the handbooks, and I used your Omega Flight characters like Miss Mass and Bile <laughs> in my pitch, I remember at the time. Uh, lots of really fun characters, lots of really fun moments, and a big cast. I'm really fond of the characters Purple Girl and Mannequin. You do some fun things with them. You give uh, you give mystical threats and magic threats and government threats and superhero. You know, the, the Wrecking Crew shows up. My favorite run of yours, and you're, you're one of the only writers to ever really focus on this particular character, who a lot of people are fond of because of the Age of Apocalypse, and that's uh, Wild Child. Uh, you gave us very much his story of turning into Weapon Omega and Wild Heart. Uh, but he's also got that 90s, like, Lorenzo Lamas, long hair, skin-tight clothes. Like, <laughs> tell me about your work with uh, Kyle Gibney. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I, Alpha Flight was definitely one of those, when you look back at it now, you can tell it was, my run was the 90s. You know, it has that, 
that that art ethic that was around at the time you know everybody yes yeah, is, is 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 very sort of imagey in style but you know i mean i think we had some great i you know i enjoyed working with pat broderick who you know was someone i kind of grew up reading of course on alpha on micronauts so you know it was a big thrill to work with him and you know i i think the only sort of problem with the alpha flight run was we kept getting saddled with infinity crossovers <laughs> so i think we had not gauntlet but war and crusade, crusade. and they go on yeah. for like eight months <laughs> I know. and you know i get the yeah you know, i've always got the well maybe it's a sales boost to tag on to it but it did mean that there's always you you almost have to derail your own current through storyline to get the infinity crossover done so yeah you know there were some challenges but you know if things had turned out differently if the if comics hadn't kind of imploded in the mid 90s you know who knows we might have run for longer with it uh zeb wells recently did a series called hellions in the krakoan era that is pretty popular and one of the characters that often gets overlooked in that run he does a lot of really great things with wild child again uh, and brings back some of the continuity you introduced his relationship with aurora the pills he took to suppress have you read the hellions book I haven't, no, but I will now. It's good. It's good. It's uh, maybe my favorite in the Krakoan era, which is crazy because I'm stacking it up next to Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red, and like there's some really good, but I think Hellions might be my favorite, if I'm honest. Um, Alex, are you an Alpha Flight guy? Did you, I don't know if you ever read any of these old books. Yeah, I was actually, just as Simon was speaking, I was reminded that it was your run that kind of first got me tapped into those characters. Pat Broderick, uh, you know, I knew from you know, his work on Batman with Marv Wolfman, but I think it, you know, those Alpha Flight issues were the my introduction to the team in the modern, while I was picking up modern comics, but I obviously remember, um, you know, the Claremont Burns stuff, and uh, I reread Burns Run not not too long ago, and um, yeah, so I love those characters. I think it's always it's always been a fun a fun team, and um, I think it always seems to succeed most when it's closer to the X universe, so I, I really enjoyed some of the new stuff that at you know at Brisson's done and uh the, I, I have I'm I'm maybe an issue behind but I've really enjoyed the new series as well. Yeah, there's some Krakoan era Alpha Flight books that just wrapped up as well using another one of your characters feedback uh yeah. in kind of a prominent way. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, I mean to me it's it's always lovely when characters I've either written for or created or whatever just keep coming back. I mean, it's a bit like Death's Head who you know, we, we created as a bit of a throwaway character originally, but somehow still seems to keep cropping up in Marvel books, you know, 30 years later. Nostalgia, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alex, I'd love to hear some of the stuff you're currently doing, if you'd like to talk about it a bit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, earlier this year, uh, Ananya and Spider-Man 2099 Dark Tomorrow came out, which is a Spider-Verse novel, a YA novel. And um, I think the, the cool part there is I had the novel, which is very much set in Ananya's early days. And she swept into the future and she teams up with Miguel, which was, you know, they hadn't really interacted that much on page. So that was really fun to write. Um, and then I got to write two short Edge of Spider-Verse stories with uh, Anya Corazon stepping back into the Aranya role. She was Spider-Girl for a, a short amount of time. Uh, and Umberto Ramos got redesigned the costume, so that was really a neat uh, neat thing. And um, I wrote a Spider-Man short for Marvel Zombies Black, White, and Blood with uh, Javi Fernandez doing the art, and that was um, 
I'm a huge Peter Parker guy, uh, Spider, you know, a Spider person. So uh, and along with the X-Men, you know, X-Men and Spider-Man were my two go-tos as a kid. So it was really a thrill to to write a Peter Parker story. Um, and that one, it was probably the darkest thing I've ever written. And Javi did a great job with the art and um, just the use of red. If you don't aren't familiar with the black, red, black, uh, white and red stories, you know, it's, it's, it's black and white, but there's like the splashes of red. And so that really kind of. There's a there's a Marvel Zombies version of this being published right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was in the first issue, and so uh, uh, that was pretty intense. And um, yeah, I think that's the latest stuff. But I've I've gotten to play in the Spider Verse, which has been really really neat. And fingers crossed to do more. And Simon, you've been in the Spider Verse as well, right? Um, not so much, really. I mean, I you know, I absolutely like Alex. I absolutely love Spider Man. You know, Spider Man was my go to marvel character growing up you know like i suppose like a lot of people but you know i never really got to do a run i did a couple of what ifs with spider-man i did um i dropped him into alpha flight of course you know it's just like as soon as i possibly humanly could but no i've never really sort of got you know had a any kind of body of work on spider-man which is very disappointing i'm i'm sitting at the moment rereading the whole clone saga of, from spider-man you know something that Woof. Kind of <laughs> the wild ride yeah it kind of what well, it kind of pissed me off at the time but rereading it is quite a different experience with with hindsight and everything yeah it actually oddly holds up it's it's really it's really an epic almost russian novel kind of like it just never ends it just keeps going and they keep adding things <laughs> and adding things and becomes this, uh it's wild yeah. The '90s uh, was a was a crazy time, kids. <laughs> uh, yeah, Judas, Tra- Judas Traveler, who's one of the early Clone Saga villains, is one of the villains in Dark Tomorrow, the novel. And um, a friend of mine was reading it and just was like, "Wow, that's a deep cut." And I was, you know, I have a fondness for those characters. Yeah. Uh, so, tell me a little about your work with uh, on, on X Men Evolution as well, which is a beloved cartoon to so many. Yeah, I mean, I again, you know, I mean, I was just about, you know, through Transformers again, I got to write an episode of Beast Wars, the final one, as it turned out, which kind of, kind of great and sucked because, damn, I've written the last episode of that, I, you know, but the script editor on that, a guy called Bob Forward, took me on with him onto subsequent projects. So I worked on a, a CG version of the British hero Dan Dare a thing called Roswell Conspiracies, Alien Myths and Legends, which was a show from the 90s and um, or end of the 90s, I guess. And then, yeah, he he was one of the script editors on X-Men Evolution. So, uh, you know, I got to write a couple of episodes for season one on that. Uh, I've got to ask you about two of your what if books as well. These were so fun to reread. Uh, I'm just going to ask them in the form of the title. What if Rogue possessed the power of Thor, Simon? Yeah, you know, I mean, some of those what ifs, you know, I mean, again, I I just with what if, I mean, what if's a great book because, you know, you could just pick, you know, something you really enjoyed reading and do a what if spin off from it and yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know, I obviously love that Michael Golden Avengers annual that that rogue story spins out of. So I just thought, hey, you know, let's let's ha- create the first, well, you know, it wasn't the first because they'd done the Jane Foster one, but, you know, it was kind of a female Thor and uh, it kind of made 
just for a sort of fun read. And we got to change the inscription on the mallet at the end of it. So, yeah, it was it was great. And, you know, I we we riffed on the whole Dark Phoenix saga in What If Wolverine Led Alpha Flight. Mm-hmm. It was, again, a really fun one to do. And um, for I the Candy was, Southern heads out there, what if Archangel <laughs> fell from grace is another yes. really fun one with a, an alternate yeah. universe Candy Southern. <laughs> yeah. And I think what if Mr. Sinister formed the X-Men was another That's the one, one I was going to land on last. It's so fun. Uh, tell us about that story. It's great. Yeah. You know, I mean, by then, you know, Mr. Sinister was part. I mean, I, a, I thought he was a great, he was a great character, somewhat overused, but you know, a, a great character. So it was fun to sort of dip back into that formative X-Men era and, and play that out. And yeah, again, it was um it was just you know, you could dip in anywhere almost with um with what if. So, you know, I could have I could have honestly done what ifs, you know, ad infinitum, I think, because they were such fun. Oh, the irony of that statement, because Mr. Sinister has never been more overused than in the last three years of comic books. <laughs> yes. Yes. An evolving uh, character, for sure. They have uh, they have given us four different Mr. Sinisters now. There's one with a diamond, one with a club, and one with a spade, and uh, it's it's intense. Uh, Scott, are you enjoying the, uh, the Sinister storylines? Uh, I, I, I've sort of hit my fill of uh, Mr. Sinister. Mr. Sinister's uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, I just want to say I wasn't aware, Simon, that you'd written the final episode of Beast Wars because Megatron monologuing on the deck of the Nemesis is always going to be burned into um, you know that that that's a, that's a core childhood animation memory. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, the slight story behind that is. Um, they I, again i'd met the script editors at a transformers convention and they said look come on board write a g1 themed episode generation one themed episode and you know we had various ideas floating around and then suddenly it was like oh sorry the only slot is the last episode but because it involved the nemesis the big spaceship it kind of had a very g1 feel but yes you know i mean but they were great characters to write i thought beast wars was a very smart clever funny series anyway so it was great to jump in and do some of that as well uh the last x-men tie-in i'll bring up and this is another surprising one for folks you wrote annihilation conquest ronin which is not an x-men book but it does feature the excalibur character cerise who a lot of people love a lot do you want to talk about your work on uh, annihilation conquest that was a really fun era and uh rest in peace keith giffen of course definitely i mean yeah i mean i you know i'm not the greatest fan of crossovers and having to do series set within them but this was slightly different the editor andy schmidt was very much like make your series properly self-contained you know by you know tie it into the annihilation wave and what's going on but we were really given a brief to try and make our characters you know sometimes crossovers are just that you know they feel like bit of a story but with Ronan, who I, I thought was a fantastic and underused character, it was great to play him almost like the British character Judge Dredd, that very sort of, you know, straight down the line, this is the law, this is how we will enact it. And, and then, you know, just play around with that. And 
again, you know, I just suddenly thought I've got all these great cosmic characters. We put Gamora in there, you know, the shaper of worlds. Um, uh, you know, we just Glorian, I think, you know, I just sort of hit the dictionary for Marvel cosmic heroes. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it, 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 it was just really enjoyable and it was good to be a part of that. And strangely, it's the thing of mine that is possibly the most reprinted. I think it's been in so many various editions of, of Annihilation hardbacks and trade paperbacks. So strangely, it's given me a great deal of exposure. It's really pretty. You know, I liked it. I, you know, I liked working on it because it felt part of the Marvel Universe, but the cosmic stuff always feels its own little corner of that. So, it, you know, you didn't feel the need to have, you know, the Fantastic Four in it or something. It just could be all those characters, you know, a bit like Guardians of the Galaxy comic became and then the movies, you know, that, that amalgamating of of cosmic characters from different series. And the phalanx are all over the place in this as well. So for uh, for more X-Men fans. <laughs> and, you know, I can give you one more little X-Men connection. Um a while back, we that uh, talking about the phalanx, we we um, Nick Roach and I, an, an Irish artist, put together a pitch for Marvel, which was going to be a death's head. It was called Destroy All Robots, and it was just a spec pitch. We you know we didn't get any further with it, but it featured the phalanx. And when we got, we were asked to do a one-page death's head story for Marvel Comics One Thousand and One. So we just literally took the gist of that and stuck it in a little one-page story. So I got to write the phalanx in that. Oh, that's cool that it came around. You finally got yeah. to use that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, are there any other characters you were you're still chomping at the bit to write for Marvel or anywhere? So many, so yeah. many. You know, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't know where to start. But you know, I would love a run at Spider-Man. You know, it, it still is you know, my favourite character. And, yeah, just to do a, a bit of a steady run on Spider-Man and that world would definitely be my go-to. Uh, I've been podcasting for a while now, but I try to always land in a place of gratitude and, like, go listen to, like, little teenage me nerding out. The fact that I'm interviewing, uh, you know, Simon Furman and hanging out with Alex Segura is such a big deal. And Scott, it's uh, lovely to have you on every time. Uh, this is a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for the uh, for the answers so far. Uh, Simon, I'd love to hear your, uh, your one-two take on uh, Silver Age X-Men, if you have a relationship to the early book before Claremont. Oh, oh for sure, you know... I mean, we used to get the, uh, in the UK, we used to get reprints of Marvel stuff. And of course it was, this was way before New X-Men. So, you know, I wrote, I read almost all the original series and then I pretty much used to haunt secondhand bookstores over here, trying to find proper color Marvel comics. And funnily enough, Amazing Adventures was one of those ones I, I managed to track down. And I was slightly ahead of the curve. I came in on an issue with Furry Beast, not knowing how we'd got there. Um, but I was I was kind of blown away by it. And and it's funny when you come back to this stuff now, you know, I've, I've got all the masterwork. I, I tend to pick up as many masterworks as my budget will allow. And 
you know, I, I, I reread the story, the Amazing Adventure series in the Masterworks edition. And the contextual stuff just tells you what a low kind of isolated place X-Men was in at this time that, you know, their own book had been cancelled. They were guest starring them here, there. There was Iceman in Spider-Man and there was a Marvel team up with the X-Men, but it wasn't really getting any traction. And this was a sort of wilderness years for the X-Men characters. But I kind of love it for that. And it produced a bit like the Beast story in Amazing Adventures, some really kind of offbeat and off-kilter X-Men stories. <laughs> it's a really fascinating era, that kind of gap period between uh, the Silver Age and, and the Claremont run. That's where we're going to spend this whole 2024 on my show. I've got a lot of content planned. It's interesting. One of the things we brought up when I introduced this new Beast series a couple weeks ago uh, with Jordan and Spencer, the uh, the little kids who were reading the comics uh, that they were written for in the 60s are now the kids that are being drafted into Vietnam, right? Like yeah. it's a different era. Uh, it's it's hippies and peace and love and man on the moon and like question the government. It's a whole different era. So let me set up the issue we're going to review for today. Uh, I'm going to do a quick previously in Amazing Adventures uh, on Grey Vulcan Lane. Henry McCoy took a job for the Brand Corporation, which is a knockoff of the real-life Rand Corporation, uh, very thinly veiled. You just put a B on the front <laughs> in order to do uh, genetic research. After he isolated a serum, which seems to be kind of like mutant gr growth hormone, it would give uh, humans temporary mutant powers. Hank had to drink it himself, or at least he thought so, in order to stop some spies from the Secret Empire getting it. Uh, and this is, again, a new era. The Secret Empire is in some Steve Englehart stories soon, infiltrating the American government. It's the KKK and the Nazi party mixed together, and it's a real bad group. We'll talk more about them later this year. Uh, but it permanently changed him into a gray-furred beast, which was soon made black and then blue because they're trying to make him catch on with readers. Uh, since then, Hank has created a latex mask and some gloves. He's using a shoddy disguise, which is the most ridiculous thing from this era, because how could you not notice? Uh, he has a girlfriend named Linda Donaldson, who's his research assistant, but she's also secretly an agent of the Secret Empire. He's keeping her at arm's length. He's also avoiding the investigations of a military man named Buzz Baxter who is a Patsy Walker romance comics 50s character who is there with his wife, Patsy Walker. Uh, Steve brought them back here and then later brought them back again in the Avengers when he made her Hellcat and uh, Buzz becomes Mad Dog later. Uh, Beast fought the Iron Man. He thought he'd killed him. Turns out it was an illusion from Mastermind. He briefly teamed up with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants in the most ridiculous 1970s story ever. It's fantastic. Go back and hear that episode. Uh, and then he came to his senses. Now he's going back to clean up the mess of his life. And that kind of sets up where we are with this issue today. We're going to be reviewing Amazing Adventures number 14. The title of this issue is The Vampire Machine uh, from 7th, September 1972. Steve Englehart is the writer, Tom Sutton, penciler, Jim Mooney on inks, uh, John Costanza on letters, and Roy Thomas on edits. And we've talked about each of these men on my show before, except uh, the new name here is Jim Mooney. Jim Mooney was an inker who's very famous as a Supergirl artist at DC. He's also drawn a lot of Spider-Man. He lived from 1919 to 2008, worked in the comics from the 40s to you know decades later. Uh, he helped create characters like Randy Robertson and The Prowler. He drew Omega the Unknown with Steve Gerber. He drew Ms. Marvel, Marvel Team-Up. We will see his 
name again on my show, but there's a quick introduction. Make sure to look up Jim. Uh, is this an era, uh, these Beast comics, that any of you had ever read before? Uh, Scott and then Simon and then Alex. I'd love to hear, was this your first time revisiting or, or, or visiting these early Beast stories? Um, this was this is probably my first time reading these this era critically. Um, like I've I've flipped through sort of gray beast stories, um, but it's not an era I'm like overly familiar with for the X Men. It's real silly, but it's pretty great too, uh, Simon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I was familiar with it. I you know I loved the Marvel horror titles of the you know the seventies, and this. Strangely, the Beast in Amazing Adventures has a lot of resonance with that. It's basically a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde-ish story. It, and, and I think I read it in that vein of almost a sort of superhero horror story back in the day. And, you know, rereading it again, I kind of love how much deep continuity there is in these stories. It feels like a werewolf story, except in reverse. It's the beast trying to become a man, you know? It's an interesting thing. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts on these? Yeah, I've always had this fascination with the original five, like dating back to, you know, pre-Wikipedia era. You know, the way we found out about continuity and stuff was through stuff. For me, it was like the Marvel trading cards, and I was always confused as to, well, why did the original X-Men stop being X-Men? And obviously, that's a whole winding story, but... I find this kind of gap period really intriguing, especially how Steve Englehart was, in a way, campaigning to be the X-Men guy, like working on The Beast. And um, and this issue in particular, I'd, I'd read the Masterworks that collects that era of comics, those Marvel team-up issues, everything that led up to the original Krakoa story. And this this one was, yeah, I mean, it's great stuff. It's just like kind of lost to time almost. Yeah, there are, there's some really interesting things here. Beast is doing the Wolverine story before Wolverine was quite here yet. You know, the uh, the Berserker rages and the dark side. Uh, Alex, do you want to talk to us about this cover? Will you set up the cover for us? It's uh, it's pretty fantastic. It, it looks like an old Lon Chaney movie poster, kind of. Yeah, it's got Beast ripping off his kind of flimsy uh, Hank McCoy mask. And the, the, the text on the cover is so iconic and classic Marvel. Like, behind the mask. A monster, which feels very like Lee Kirby FF and uh, behind Beast yanking off his mask are little vignettes. And one of them is, you know, the murderous menace of Quasimodo in the upper right and, and you know, Beast and Iron Man battling it out uh, for some reason uh, on the other side. It's really iconic. And um, I love the logo treatment, the Beast under the it's, it's so huge under the Amazing Adventure banner. It's, it really feels very, very of the time, but in a great way. Scott, an official challenge to cosplay this look. It's the uh, the open shirt, green suit, because he's very well dressed for a beast. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know what? I'll 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 add that to the list. Little little <laughs> low down. Um, I I think it is actually interesting. I I looked at September nineteen seventy two, and this is also the month that Werewolf by Night debuts. So there's clearly something in the water at the Marvel um, offices because this is very much giving like Lon Chaney, uh, American Werewolf, uh, you know, an American Werewolf and everything. They were all using a lot of drugs. And Roy Thomas's edict at the time was just make the book sell. Otherwise, we'll find someone else that can. You know, it was it was very loosey-goosey. The creators were kind of allowed to do whatever they wanted. It's, it was a very different time. Simon, do you have comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is also the time Marvel came out from under their distribution deal that 
you know, all their comics were distributed by DC, which I always thought was such a strange setup. And they were kind of limited in numbers. And there was just this explosion at this time. And there was also, I think, a loosening of what they could and couldn't do under the comics code that led to them being able to do Drac Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night. And, and it, it kind of feels very sort of bridging all this material in terms of what Marvel had been and what Marvel was turning into, I suppose, during the 70s. So, yeah, it, it's almost like they got very experimental very quickly and some of it works and maybe some of it doesn't work so well in hindsight. But, the, you know, the, the level of experimentation always makes these old comics from this era really interesting. I really love this particular issue. It's, it is action, it is thriller, it is horror, but it's also soap opera, which is always fun. Uh, I'll do a quick introduction of Quasimodo. This is a character I'm weirdly fond of. We did a feature on him on my show with Danger when we did a trial for the both of them uh, at the time. I read Quasimodo front to back. This is a little guy that was created by the mad thinker to experience angst. Like, he wants to be a human but he finds himself ugly. And even when he creates himself human bodies, he still makes himself ugly and then like wants revenge. And this is his programming. It's almost like he can't escape it. Uh, he looks very unfortunately like a man wearing a condom on this cover, which is very unfortunate. <laughs> like cut a hole in a condom and then just pull, pulled it over his head. But uh, I'm weirdly I'm weirdly fond of the our uh, quasi-motivational destruct organ. Uh, what was that, Alex? I was just wondering who the artist is. Is it Sutton on the cover? It doesn't look like him. Uh, I will look that up as we are talking. Do any of you have any uh, any comments on Quasimodo? We'll get to him later in this issue. This is maybe his weirdest appearance. <laughs> Uh, before this, he was created by the Mad Thinker and trapped in like a, a clock body. And then the Silver Surfer came around and was like, hey, I, uh, I I see that you're tortured. So let me build you a body. And he made him an ugly body. So like <laughs> the Silver Surfer's a, an asshole. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, not super helpful. This is listed <laughs> online. This is listed online as a Gil Kane uh, cover. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it looks like Kane and maybe Ramita inking him. It's straight. Sure. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. Uh, so let me open this book for us. I'll cover the first few pages and we can talk about it. We open on a beautiful splash page of the beast who is all big hands and feet as he jumps through a series of explosions while missiles are still firing at him. He's looking much more blue than gray here. Uh, it turns out Iron Man is testing his suit against some offensive weaponry and Beast wants to talk right now. Like, I don't care that we're in the middle of a battlefield. Uh, Iron Man comments on Beast's agility and Beast goes, soft soap is not required, I am. And I have no idea what that phrase means. Does anyone have any idea what he means when he says soft soap is not required in reference to his agility? Yeah, you don't have to go, you don't have to flatter me. Soft soap <laughs> is a kind of way of saying... I'm I'm flattering you. So, you know, in other words, flattery is not necessary. I was like, does he need to lather up to slide through things? I wasn't <laughs> sure what was going on here. Uh, so there's a guard that just shoots Beast. Beast gets shot so many times in Amazing Adventures, and he just kind of shrugs it off. His healing factor is in full effect before it wears off later, apparently. He is Iron the Man... And the bludgeoned what? beast. <laughs> yeah, the bludgeoning beast. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like it, actually. Uh, Iron Man tells Beast, you know, basically, sorry, I should have followed you when you thought I was dead. But I thought, you know, you got some problems you need to work out on your own. So I was going to let this monster go, which is, you know, th the typical Avengers approach. I'll fight you until I'm done and then let you go. Uh, beast thanks Iron Man for calling him a man. Like, 
that helps. You know, I look like a beast, but you called me a man. He jumps over a fence, and then Iron Man, the guard, the guard that shot Beast, Iron Man walks over, crushes the guard's gun, and then fires him, which is kind of great. It's actually maybe my favorite moment in this uh, issue. Uh, listen to the advice from this hypocrite. Iron Man says to the guard, violence is a last resort, one you don't use without thinking. And if you think, you can find another way hypocrite because iron man is not a man who like thinks things through first do you guys have any comments on iron man's brief appearance in this issue literally manufactures like weapons of war or did you know (laughs) yeah he's like having his guards like shoot shoot missiles at him and then he's like violence is only for last resort (laughs) only i can use violence Yeah, this this is also pre-demon in a bottle, Tony Stark. So it's <laughs> like, uh, really, really, Tony, this you're lecturing people. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Beast Iron Man connection. This is not one we see explored often in comics, but these are two men who do big things without thinking through the consequences. Maybe the biggest two assholes in the Marvel universe as a result of that. So Tony uh, offering Beast solace when they're both going to go like on to break the space-time continuum in the future is also kind of ironic. Uh, Simon, do you have any thoughts on Iron Man and Beast here? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a strange pairing. You know, I get that they wanted a a kind of guest star in there to to keep the mainstream Marvel interest going. But, you know, I kind of probably wouldn't have picked Iron Man myself, you know, in terms of the most apt one for this series. But, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I love that Tony Stark is pretty much an an asshole here the way he is portrayed in various other things it's almost like you know i mean i I always liked iron man because iron man just seems to be the confident version of tony stark and tony stark is not confident at all and resorts to the bottle and everything else but here you get a a brilliantly callous iron man who then like you say lectures the guard about sort of shooting first and thinking second you shot the monster that seemed to be attacking me like how dare you <laughs> come on you guard I wish, job. I wish that iron man had gotten the idea from the beast to wear his armor but then put a latex mask and gloves over it and walk around <laughs> maybe people wouldn't have recognized him because that's again that's the dumbest thing in this whole era uh, we see Beast jumping through a dark city. Somehow the moon is right behind him in every shot, which I find hilarious. Uh, he sees some people kissing, and then he hears a cat that's like, Rawr! and suddenly he thinks of Linda, and that's hilarious to me. I did a whole episode about Linda Donaldson with a couple fans on the Patreon, so go listen if you would like. Uh, I, I I love her very much. Uh, Beast also remembers how Iron Man's psychic girlfriend, Marianne Rogers, thought that Linda was evil, but he's like, there's no way she couldn't be. Uh, Linda is not very bright. She's hanging around with this guy at a latex mask and doesn't know the difference. Uh, Then you see him back in his apartment. He's covered all the mirrors with blankets, and he's trying to find some good humor about the fact that he's a furry monster now. But then the doorbell rings. So we'll go from there. But do you guys have any comments on these first few pages? Feels very spider. I mean, this this scene where he's like just swinging through the city and, you know, kind of recapping and and feeling down. It feels very spider-man-esque or at least classic spider-man but uh, i i did notice the moon thing and i think that almost seems like there's two moons in one panel <laughs> that's kind of bizarre <laughs> he's in like a ring world or something <laughs> yeah uh simon do you want to take us through the uh next part of the book tell us what happens okay so um are we up to um page six uh so when the doorbell rings and then uh and then linda comes over oh okay yeah so 
Linda Linda comes in and um you know sort of seems unaware that Hank has sort of roughly tucked his mask in to avoid the tear and um and basically is hiding all his furry bits and she doesn't seem to think this is very awkward and takes his I'm ill excuse as a pretty sort of easy way and and just walks out again you know I wasn't uh, entirely sold on uh, this whole excuse and this is also this is also very spider-man right like he his costume's torn he's got to throw his robe on over it but this is beast putting a torn mask and a coat over his fur and then like i'm sick don't get too close to me it's ridiculous (laughs) and i do love that in one panel it's sort of peeled up a bit as he's talking to linda on one side so you can just see the blue or gray fur but yeah, and I love the I love the no no, I'm too contagious, you'll catch it. You know, it's it just has so many subtexts to it. So And if uh, you were wondering, if you're wondering if these two were fucking, there's a moment where Linda gets really close. And of course, she's an evil spy who wants his secrets, but she goes, he he says, I'm I'm cold. And she goes, You poor baby, I know just what to do for colds. Here, let's get you out of that robe and I'll massage medication all over your tummy. I'll toss in a kiss as an incentive to get well fast. And that's what he pulls away. These two are clearly having at least before he he turned into a monster they were having sex it's also a very specific thing like, i'm gonna just this is what i do for colds as i rub people's tummies with this <laughs> i'm gonna try this with my husband later we'll see if it works <laughs> so i kind of love that after she leaves we get into the hitting things in anger moment with the beast so you know he has his issues he really should have written an email that uh he didn't send instead because he's ruined a perfectly good coffee table there. But, you know, I mean, I think this, it's, uh, I, this image where he's pulling the mask off and it's half the mask and half his face is gorgeous. I really yep. love it. Yep. And yeah, you know, I love we've got other sort of intrigue going on. Somebody else buzzing on the bell and uh you know, uh, so this has been a running gag for a couple issues. Vera Cantor, the old 60s uh, girlfriend of the Beast, has been looking for him for some desperate reason. We will not get the answer about why she's looking for him until after the series is canceled and Steve Englehart picks the the, the storyline up. It's a mimic problem. We'll uh, we'll get to that in an Incredible Hulk issue later this year on my show. Right, you're, uh, you're, you used Vera Cantor in your uh, Angel Fell from Grace story, if I'm remembering, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, she she's a bit of a mainstay of Beast stories ever after from this, isn't she? I love her. I love her. Yeah. I mean, I thought she was really fun. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's funny. It struck me when I was reading this that the, the this new Beast starts off as quite a dark character, but... They quickly, after Amazing Adventures, once the beasts in Avengers and so forth, turn him into this fun bundle of joy that sort of is just the bouncing beast instead of the bludgeoning beast. So uh, it was a quite shift in tone from this. Uh, Do you want to tell us about Beast going back to the brand corporation? Yeah. So he decides he's going to go back to brand, sort stuff out. He, He he drops right in on the military, which is kind of clumsy, <laughs> you know. So it's all this stealth, and then he drops right in the middle of a bunch of soldiers, which uh, you know just made me smile. And you know, I love that Captain Baxter is is almost Thunderbolt Ross. You know, they seem to Marvel had a kind of like a stamp, 
and it was like here's the mil here's the angry military guy thunderbolt ross stamp colonel talbot stamp you know and and here's another one in in captain baxter there's a there's literal gunfire going off and i'm picturing patsy walker as like Edo annie if you guys know that character like a, a poison can develop a cold you know like that that she she goes golly buzz it sure is noisy tonight as like machine guns are going off around her i fucking love patsy walker <laughs> i mean i love that they bought this character from the romance comics into the superhero line as well or characters from them. It, it's kind of always struck me as really strange, but I love following the evolution of Patsy Walker throughout Marvel Comics. She's fascinating. I love her. Um, and then uh, do you want to tell us about Beast getting into his lab? Yep. So he, he finally sort of gets back into his lab, does his quick change again, which, boy, that must... It is a quick change, that, isn't it? Tucking everything in and getting the latex on. And boy, is this the best latex since, I don't know, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, because no one can detect it's a rubber mask. I'd almost buy it if he had like an image inducer, right? Like what the yeah. thing that Night Nightcrawler later used to yes. like hide his appearance. Yeah, I mean, that would have been more fun. But, you know, OK, it's a latest latex mask and they they get some mileage out of that. But, you know, again, I love the way just people drop into this scene in this secure compound, you know, sort of <laughs> we're in we're in the middle of the brand corporation and 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 you know, Linda strolls in and Patsy's just there because why? You know, I I wasn't really sure I knew. And and yeah, there's just sort of everyone drops into this scene to have a debate about things. But you know, <laughs> It, it struck me as the pure soap opera element of the the whole issue. This this bit, it's like this collision of of the military and the, his love life in the middle of all the angst that's going on. So yeah, I just I just love all this. So Linda went to his apartment. He said, "I have a cold." She returned to base, but now he's back at base. He got there before she did, even though she drove her car. And she's and like, what, knows, the, "What the fuck are you doing here?" <laughs> yeah. And yes, you're magically better now, aren't you? Can we talk about Linda Donaldson's coat as well, please? Uh, anyone uh, anyone have comments on this Mrs. Santa Claus cosplay she's doing? <laughs> Yeah, it is very festive. I don't know if that was the intent, but she also, like you know, Simon says, she just kind of appears, which was a little bizarre. <laughs> yeah, she. Uh, it, it looks like she's like riding up on an elevator out of the ground. <laughs> yeah, it does actually, doesn't it? Kind of rises yeah. into the mist. Um, it, it, it's also really funny to me that this all takes place on like suburban Long Island. Um, yeah. the Stark missile testing, uh, the brand factory, and just Nassau County. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alex, will you take us through the next few pages? Yeah, so Beast is wondering, how could they have seen the Beast? You know, how did things go wrong so quickly? And Linda's there just looking a little anxious. And, and, and he's, you know, Hank is having a crisis of conscience. You know, how did things get so crazy? And uh, you know, Linda's apologetic because she basically refused to back up his story. And, you know, how how dare, you know, how could I ever lie about, you know, what happened? I love my country. And then she has a winking kind of thought balloon. I do love my country, even though it's not America. Um, he, uh, 
he tried using her as his excuse. Like, I was off the base with Linda. She's like, fuck you. No, you were not. Which I yeah, love. Yeah, that was a very clumsy, clumsy <laughs> lie. Like, at least, like, have your alibi be on, on the same page as you are. And, uh, she, you know, she tells him he lo- she loves him. And he he gives her a kind of middling love you to. And 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 then we get we kind of a little recap of uh so uh, before before we before we keep going oh, sure. uh, two two comments quickly uh she so the 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 military runs off because they hear about a beast the beast is still running around it's not the beast yeah. it's quasimodo which we'll learn in a minute but there's also this moment where do you see the close up on page 12 of the beast's latex mask over his face and his like big green eyes are all wonky and scary it's it's kind of impressive because it's a it's a mask over a monster face. And this is one of those few moments when we get that view. I think it's pretty fantastic. Also, when she hugs him from behind, she does not feel all the thick bris- bristly fur underneath his coat, apparently. Very thick coat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Hank is feeling, you know, very, very driven to finally figure out a cure for his furry status. And as he's working in the lab, he sees a shape and that shape. And uh, he wonders if it's this like alternative beast that's been kind of going running around and, and giving him a bad rep. But we soon discover, you know, he delays his experiment and we soon discover who the shape actually is. Surprise, it's Quasimodo. And we get a fun throwdown battle between Beast and, and Quasimodo in the lab and get some nice exposition from Quasimodo about why he's there and his, his plight. Um, yeah, so- which I thought was really dynamically, if that's a word, uh, illustrated here. The uh the one speech from Beast I'll give when he sees Quasimodo run past, he he thinks it's the beast and he goes, yeah. uh, but if I really believed that, one look at my strapped up body would show me otherwise. If I really believed that, I wouldn't even take that look. I'd stay wrapped in a cocoon of rubber, insulated from any reality. But I can't, so I won't. As I told Mastermind, I'm a one-of-a-kind monster. I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm enough, I'm in enough trouble, even without understudies. Uh, and do you want to do you want to describe Quasimodo's appearance here? Uh, he's not having his best day. Yeah, he's got a very like scarecrowy face and a bit of a like over over muscly physique, but it's not evenly distributed. So his back is very like bloated, and his one arm seems longer than the other. He's definitely like had a rough go of it. It seems like. He's horrifying. It looks like an old, uh, like Lon Chaney movie monster yeah. uh, again. Uh, Simon, do you have any comments on uh, on Quasimodo's appearance here? Yeah, I mean, I think also they it's not quite consistent throughout the issue. You know, the, the first appearance as he turns round, he looks very sort of organic, if you like, and then they try and slightly correct that so he looks more machine like in other pictures. But I, I think they were sort of stuck between wanting him to look like the beast you know so there's there's the parallel of he's fighting the inorganic beast but i you know i think they sort of lost sight slightly that this is a is a computer a machine being and yeah you know it it just somewhat the the look didn't work for me so Quasimodo's thing, he is the Quasimotivational Destruct Organ, which is the worst acronym in comics. Uh, you know, one of the worst. He has an eye that can fire force beams, but in this it's been upgraded to drain life force. So his goal here, he heard about this beast. He wants to drain the beast's life force so he can take his metabolism away, which will, 
allow him to do something. So the title of this issue is The Vampire Machine, right? And this guy is The Vampire Machine because he can suck your life force. Uh, it's an interesting upgrade for this character. It doesn't last very long. Uh, would any of you like to tell me about your own quasi-motivational destruct organs? Otherwise, we can move forward. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just like to say I love some of the, you know, the authorly in, interjections in this comic. You know, sort of every now and then Engelhart comes completely out of the story, and you'll get something like it happens in bad movies all the time. The hero caught in a web of deceit, you know, and then you know when she hugs him, it's like ah, oh, ain't love grand, and. <laughs> You know, and I, I was I was half I was most happy reading these little semi-editorial interjections into the story, which I kind of love because they're almost old Marvel, but they're slightly more tongue-in-cheek than those. Some, some of these issues, the narrator is like taunting Hank McCoy. Like, yeah. you're a moron, aren't you, Hank McCoy? What were you thinking, Hank McCoy? How could you do this to yourself? Uh Agree. The subplot part is the most interesting part of the story. I mean, obviously, the Quasimodo battle, Moto battle is the a plot, but it it kind of feels the most perfunctory. The Quasimodo also mentions that he's been in contact with Agent Nine and with Mastermind. That's how he heard about Beast. So he's been he's been like hanging out on like the villain message boards or like the bar with no name. Or Discord, yeah. A Quasimodo Mastermind team up is not something I ever need to see in a comic. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, Scott, will you take us through the end of the book? Yeah. Uh, so after revealing that he learned about this from number nine and mastermind, um, he yells, you would do me to this half-life and then proceeds to uh, narrate uh, how much greater he is than Beast in a very sort of Silver Age way where he's yelling about how my mind is computer fast. My body is massive and powerful. Well, you are only a beast. I am superior and in all ways. I, I am, I really I am yeah, I, I am superior, but I also need your body. So, um, and they, they go out fighting on a, you know, a construction site and, um, you get some, and where, some and where the army is now, these guys are running around with machine. There's like 40 of these guys. <laughs> no, the, the army, they've, they've got other stuff going on down there. Um, you know, secret empires involved. So Richard Nixon's told them maybe to back off. I don't know. Um, but it's just, they, they fight up on the, uh, like the girders and, um, he was yelling Quasimodo is safe and my, my destructive eye can, and he's firing these beams. Um, it's nuts. It's, it's, but it's really great dynamic art. Um, that really emphasizes B sort of agility as we see him leaping from like girder to girder. He's the narration, dodging. Englehart gives us one line where he goes, doubt sleep in his head like rabbits in a bag. <laughs> I love some of this dialogue. It's fantastic. Oh, it's it's great. And he, he he finally, again, Beast gets shot about four or five times with a rivet gun. Um, and, you know, he yells, snarg. And um, Quasimodo goes, astounding. I wasn't prepared for such good fortune. Um, and it's just, it's great, like, really pulpy dialogue um and there's an Hank old um there's an old power man villain that goes on to fight i think ms marvel named steeplejack he's like a yeah. construction theme bad guy who like fires yeah. weather guns at people this guy gives me that energy <laughs> it's it's the same sort of energy and it's it's funny like i've um i got the 
Silver Age Captain Marvel omnibus, and I looked it up, and the last time he Quasimodo had appeared was fighting Captain Marvel, and it's very similar where he's just he's narrating about how great he is, while Marvel is like, I really just don't have the time or the energy to deal with this right now. But he does drain Beast's powers. And it, it almost seems like Beast realizes the only way to defeat this guy is by submitting. Yeah. Uh, because Quasimodo says, I will become human and you will become a corpse. And um, shockingly, uh, he loses his balance and um, Beast flips him off the girder and um, he falls to his apparent death. Nope, he's back. <laughs> He's back. Yeah, he's he's back like two years later fighting Spider-Man and Hawkeye. In another very, very weird appearance. Uh, that one again, go listen to the Quasimodo trial. Uh, what was that, Alex? Oh, there's just this one great panel uh, where he's saying, I'm sorry, you know, right after Beast says he never gives up and then Quasimodo seems surprised. He's like, you really mean it. You do. And it's just the colors. It feels very Kirby riffing. The fun parallel here is Quasimodo's a riff on the Beast concept, right? Which we'll see again next issue with the Griffin. It's another version of that. Uh, is, as, as Quasimodo falls, you can see his screen kind of powered down. His face kind of shuts off. And then Beast goes, he killed himself. I know I should say it killed itself, but despite his final words, that's not the way it was. With his illogic, his anger, his horror, he was closer to humanity than he knew. Uh, so he's wrestling with his own, right? And his powers seem to be depleted. Maybe this is where he lost his healing factor. Maybe it's because of Quasimodo's vampire energy, like, destruct organ. Get uh, the no prize. Go ahead. Get the no prize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was the handbook guy. This was my job. It was like, no prizes was my job. <laughs> uh, Scott, do you have any final thoughts on the the last few pages here? Um, Yeah, to, to sort of bring it back to what some people have said before, like, this felt in a lot of ways like a Spider-Man story. Like the writers really wanted to use Spider-Man, but they couldn't. So instead we're going to use Beast and have him just do all of these sort of acrobatics. And, oh, I'm a man or I'm a monster. And um, But I, I really, the, the art really drew me in. It was really dynamic. And um, I mean, and the dialogue. I, I love... I love this over-the-top sort of B-movie dialogue. Can't beat it. There's some really silly, silver agey kind of moments in this. The latex mask being the biggest one, yeah. you know, the soap operas. But I, uh, you know, I'm revisiting the series, like, in-depth in this way. And I really love it. I think it's really good. I, I, it's it's a lot of fun. I'm more fond of it than most of the X-Men Silver Age stuff, if I'm honest. It's a big tone shift. Uh, do you guys have any concluding thoughts on what was it like to review this issue? It's really well crafted. I mean, you know, like I said before, it felt like the battle itself was was really the secondary plot. I, I found myself most connected in in Hank's story and his struggles, and you know, the mysterious woman creeping into his apartment and how he's going. To, it's an it feels like meaningful setup for something that was supposed to run a lot longer, but unfortunately didn't. Sam. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I I like the horror vibe that runs through it. It's not. It doesn't strike me as a superhero comic in that way. It's it's more it's darker. It's it's about body horror really in many ways. It's about metamorphosis. So you know, I think I think there's a lot of nice 
of that era horror sub horror themes running through it so the great thing is i don't find it too much sometimes it's like oh here's the villain of the week or whatever but i like the fact they're both sort of tortured warped souls in this and Engelhart gives us just enough of like the big the beast's big vocabulary, right? We get words like paroxysm and like some things I had to look up and I'm like, oh, beast is still teaching me words. <laughs> but it's done yeah. in a charming way. Sometimes beast comes across as so obnoxious. I uh, I enjoy this series a lot. What, what was that, Alex? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not as heavy handed as some of the, the later Kirby Silver Age stuff where it's just like you kind of you need the thesaurus just to get through the word balloons. Yeah. Wolf. <laughs> I love when the beast first corners Quasimodo. He calls him Fauntleroy, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, you know, did that have kids reaching for the diction? What who the hell is little Lord Fauntleroy? You know, it's it, I just think it's so obscure, it's wonderful. This is one of my favorite uh trivia facts that I can lay on people once in a while. Fauntleroy is Donald Duck's middle name, and it's the kind of hat he wears, mm. Donald Fauntleroy Duck. So there you go, everybody. <laughs> hey. That doesn't come up in conversation unless somebody says the word Fauntleroy. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a genuine delight. Uh, Scott, any final thoughts before we wrap up? No, it, it was um, stack of what everyone else said. It was it was a really interesting issue to read. Uh, I was not overly familiar with Amazing Adventures. Um it's nice to have this like within the context of what Marvel was doing at the time with like horror comics and really pushing sort of like vampires and werewolves. And, you know, they, they repeatedly refer to Quasimodo as like a uh, not living vampire. That's Morbius, but as a vampire machine. Mm -hmm. And you can see how Marvel is trying to skirt some of the limitations of the comics um, code. And it's, it's just really fascinating to me as like a historical uh, sort of piece. It's a, this is a fun read. Now, for those of you that are wondering where the hell we're going on this show next, we've got two more amazing adventures issues. There is Beast and Angel fighting the Griffin, and then there is a Juggernaut story. Uh, after that, we're going to be shifting into some early Astonishing Tales, which is Kazar versus Craven the Hunter, and then the first appearances of Garok the Petrified Man and Zaladane. So we'll be getting there on my show in the next little while. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun this year. I'm very hey, excited. Zaladane. Yeah, oh, she's she's yeah. she's a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah. Simon, it's a genuine joy to meet you and hear your your stories. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd love to talk to you uh, in the future about doing uh, an episode on Wire. I'd love to talk to you all about Wire. He's a uh, he's a lot of fun. That's a, that's a whole conversation. That definitely. <laughs> you notice I saved it. <laughs> uh, well, as we're wrapping up, we're going to put this out on a January 22nd. Uh, where can people find each of you online? And is there anything you would like to plug? I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. The three of you are welcome to add me. But you can find Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram, as well as uh, Gray Malkin Lane on Discord. Uh, the next episode out after this is the monthly trial. We're going to be featuring the character Madam Hydra, who is the Bond girl, the green-haired Nazi lady that married Wolverine that one time. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and then the next episode immediately after this, we'll go back to uh, Amazing Adventures on the main show. The Patreon episode coming out right after this is going to feature the character Zeitgeist with uh, with the incredibly uh, smart Michael Elliott. We're going to talk a lot about uh, culture. It's going to be uh, fascinating. Uh, so, uh, Simon, where can people find you? And is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, sure. I mean, people can find me on Facebook, on X. I still have trouble calling it X. And Instagram. 
Um, and yeah, and news of things. Uh, one of the things I'd like to talk about that I haven't really is that uh, this year I published a, a graphic novel, a self-published graphic novel, which is available through Amazon Direct. It's um, called Five Points. It's a little change of pace for me. It's a kind of crime noir set in period New York City. So uh, it was great, a really fun one to research as well. I mean, I don't know whether you know, but Five Points is the notorious intersection of streets in Lower Manhattan that was kind of immortalized in Gangs of New York and and so forth. But it's a very sort of moody, evocative, slightly supernatural one. It's called Five Points. I look forward to it. I'm a huge fan of your writing. I want to go back and read Transformers now. <laughs> uh, Alex? Yeah, I'm not active on Twitter anymore. I mean, I still have my account up there, but uh, if the best way to engage with me is either on Instagram, Alex Segura Jr., or Probably the best spot is my newsletter, alexsegura.substack.com. You can find all my info on my website, alexsegura.com. And um, the big stuff for me next year, uh, I have lots of novels coming out. I have Dark Space, which is a sci-fi spy novel co-written with Rob Hart, the author of The Warehouse. That's coming out from Blackstone. Also, Alter Ego, which is the follow-up to Secret Identity. It's a comic book murder mystery set in the modern day, featuring a new protagonist, but picking up some threads from... Secret Identity and featuring some comic book illustrations by Sandy Gerald. And we also have Dick Tracy, number one, co-written with Mike Moracy with great art by Geraldo Borges. It's coming out from Mad Cave in April and some other stuff I, I can't talk about yet. But that's good. I can't wait. I'm so excited for Alter Ego, Alex. I, oh, thanks. Like, yeah, I hope you like it. I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it right now. As we speak, the document is open on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then Scott. Oh, um, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Blue Sky, uh, whatever, uh, at Scott Free. Um, nothing like huge going on. I'm building a pyro cosplay uh, at Infinitum. I got to finish the flamethrower backpack. You really shouldn't be able to Google how to build a flamethrower, but you can. <laughs> uh, government, please look into that. Um, but uh, yeah, beyond that, I'm around. I'll see a lot of people at cons. Say hi. Thank you, everybody, so much. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Simon. We will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.